it's really, really powerful. And uh, the genetic genealogy is the, is the key to that. And it brings a closure to these people, which is awesome to see. Welcome to the Crime News Insider Podcast. This is Deputy District Attorney Jorge Del Portillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? Hey, Jorge. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Today's episode, we are going to talk about something fascinating, uh, cold case homicides. The coldest case I've ever had was probably three years, which is the statute of limitations. Uh, but cold case homicide, uh, it's a specialized unit in our district attorney's office, and a, a lot of other offices have it. And it's been a lot in the news with the Golden State Killer, as well as uh, some other cases. The Golden State Killer, if you don't know, was a, a man that was a former cop named, what was his name? Joseph D'Angelo? Yes. His name was Joseph D'Angelo, and he was known as the Golden State Killer, also known as the... Uh, he was the East Area Rapist, and then he was the Night Stalker, but then there was the, another Night Stalker, so... So the that's original why he, he got, got renamed the Golden State Killer too, that's right. to encompass all of his crimes from like I think it was from the 70s through the through the 80s. Yes, and he would famously call police departments. I mean, this is kind of like straight out of a movie where he would call police departments and say, "I'm the East Bay Killer or whatever he was, uh, and you're never going to catch me." And would go out and commit a rape or a murder. And he finally got arrested in 2018 due to a new kind of tact using genealogy, DNA testing and comparisons. So today we have a special guest with us. His name is Brian Erickson. He's a deputy district attorney in the San Diego district attorney's office. Brian Erickson has been a prosecutor for 26 years. He went to California Western School of Law here in San Diego, was a deputy DA up in Tuolum. How do you say that? Tuolumne? Tuolumne, yes. Tuolumne. Uh, that's up in Yosemite area. He was also a deputy city attorney here in San Diego and the head of the child abuse and domestic violence unit. And within our office of the San Diego DA's office, he has done pretty much everything. Sex crimes and stalking, human trafficking, domestic violence unit, gangs unit, the superior court uh, team where he was a team leader, and then finally now the cold case unit. Brian Erickson, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jorge and Laurie. Good to see you. Nice to see you too. So can you tell us a little bit about the cold case unit and what it's all about? Sure. Uh, the cold case unit in our office was established in 2003. Lately, as of 2018, is when we've really uh, started heating up and being able to uh, solve more cases through genetic genealogy, which I'll go more into. But basically what happens is a case, um, the police will be investigating a homicide case, and they exhaust every lead that they can. They collect as much evidence as they can. And they, unfortunately, in a lot of times, they just don't, you know, get a suspect or find enough evidence where they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So what they say is the case goes cold, and I'm sure everybody's heard that, you know, on TV and things like that. So a lot of times, you know, cases in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even before that, um, murders will occur and the police will investigate it, collect evidence, but not find a, a suspect. So it'll go cold, it'll sit on a shelf for a while. And recently, along with our office, when we've re recently, we've started kicking up these cold cases, the police departments locally, the San Diego Sheriff, the, L um, the uh, San Diego Police Department, uh, La Mesa Police Department, I've had a couple cases with them recently, have really kicked up these cases and started paying attention to them. 
And a lot of the cases that we're seeing are cases where, like for instance, a, a case from 1983, where there was evidence collected at a scene, they happened to be cigarette butts. Well, 1983, we were not, the law enforcement didn't have the capability of looking at DNA. So they couldn't, they weren't, they didn't even know to collect for DNA, which is amazing in these cases, because a lot of them, they collected things like cigarette butts that knowing that this may have some evidentiary value. So later they'll look at them and then they'll, uh, they'll you know, they'll look at the DNA in a cigarette butt and then be able to trace that back to a suspect that obviously would put them at the scene of the crime. So we do it through that. And as I said, uh, genetic genealogy since 2018 has, we've solved um, 12 different cases, cold cases through the use of genetic genealogy. Wow. And it's an amazing process, which we can, you know, delve into deeper. But, uh, you know, basically it's a, um, it's, these are cases that go cold and then we look at them and it's a corroboration between the police departments and our office where we'll look at cases and see cases that we may have new evidence or a new set of eyes looking at them. So that's that's the that's why we're most successful with these cases is when we get a new set of eyes, whether it's a detective, whether it's one of our investigators or even us as a deputy, uh, dis, the deputy district attorney looking at it. So, Brian, originally, you know, when DNA came along, it was a big big deal for solving cold cases because you go back to the cigarette butt that you mentioned and you say, okay, wow, you know, it's been sitting in evidence for such a long time, but there's still somebody's DNA on it. And if we can find a match, all right, if if that DNA comes back to somebody, then we could potentially solve this case. How does genetic genealogy take it to the next level? Sure. And, and the one step before that, and I'll, I'll just mention that quick briefly, is there's another system called CODIS. And CODIS is a system where uh, when a defendant's arrested and charged and, and found guilty, they'll take a DNA sample. And that's been recent. And so there is a database that the state holds of CODIS DNA where we can go to it right away. And uh, the, the limitations to that, it's only arrests the convictions and uh, you know to that extent. So a lot of times we'll get um, we'll have DNA at a scene. We can load it in that CODIS system, and we'll get a match through that, and then we'll be able to confirm it. Uh, but DNA has literally only been around in the criminal realm since the early '90s. So like I said, I've got cases from like 1983 where they had the wherewithal to collect a cigarette butt from the scene, and then a new detective looks at it 30, 38 years later and sees a, an uh, unknown. DNA on that cigarette butt, put it into CODIS, and if the person has a criminal record where their DNA has been collected, we can find them through that. Now, where genetic genealogy comes in is when we exhaust that um, CODIS and we, ex we exhaust the state system of criminals um, whose DNA has been collected, then we're kind of stuck once again. So what you, the obviously everybody, if you watch TV or watch commercials or anything, you'll see there's different companies like My Ancestry and 23andMe, and that's where people can swab their, you know, take their own swab, send it into the company, and then find out if they have relatives that they didn't know about. So within the last five, probably five years, this has become a huge thing, and people buy it for Christmas gifts and and give it to their relatives, and you know, this tracing of your genetic genealogy and your family tree has become really popular. So what's interesting is um, those are private companies, obviously. But my ancestry and 23andMe, I use them as an example. They're two of the biggest companies. Well, they have millions of subscribers that use their business, but they don't talk to each other. So what uh, 
different uh, people, private people have done as they formed is what, for instance, one of them is GenMatch. And these people will take their DNA from 23andMe or my ancestry or whatever company they've gone and load it into this clearinghouse, which is a public clearinghouse. And then you can find out if somebody who, you know, submitted their DNA to a different company matches yours. So it really mm -hmm. is a, a way of connecting with other people, which is the whole idea of why people have this. But it's a, it's a, it's a public database and obviously needs to be because you're looking for people, so you're sharing it. So for instance, we'll find, let's say that cigarette butt, it's got DNA in it, we've exhausted the CODIS deal, now we've got this DNA in a cigarette butt. So we can get a, um, what we do is we'll send it to a company and they'll put it in that code that 23andMe or my ancestry would have. And then we load it up into one of these public databases to see if we get any sort of familial match. Now you're not gonna get a direct match. I, I, don't, I don't know of any cases where they've gotten a direct match where somebody who has left their DNA at a crime scene um, went back and uploaded their DNA to a public <laughs> database. That would be kind of crazy. Yeah, they're probably not going <laughs> to put their DNA out there it voluntarily. Could, it huh? could happen, but normally well, they it. might want to know if they came from like you know New Zealand or, yeah. or that's true. You know, some some country of origin. That's true. But so, how do, so how does it? How does a familial match help you? Yeah. So what happens is is there's you know, DNA, it's got millions and millions of um, uh, places where you can match things. And uh, where you where you can start matching these, if it's close, you know, not everyone has the same DNA. But if, if you have a family member who's a blood relative, they're going to have very similar DNA at certain points. So they'll look at these certain points on the DNA, and then just as if they were trying to find a relative, you know, looking for a long-lost brother or sister or mother or father, the, this DNA will do the same thing, and it'll give us people that may be possible connections. So then what these genealogists do is they'll start doing, and the, along with the detectives, they'll start doing detective work, and they'll go to newspapers, family trees, um, anything. And it's interesting that where they'll find some of these things, um, and they're usually from you know a couple of generations back, and they'll start building that family tree. There's divorce records, there's marriage records, there's all these things where you can start connecting people. Sure. I've seen in the last case I worked, um, a man sued another man for um, having an affair with his wife, and they would post that in the paper. So now we know who these two people were married, and it's you don't see that very often anymore. But there's so much information, and this is once again that old-fashioned detective work that they go through, um, birth records, death records, all of these things. And they'll build that family tree from the bottom up and they'll find common grandparents. And then they can start coming down into uh, the person whose DNA was left at the crime scene. So it's usually like a, a third or fourth cousin, an aunt, an uncle, or somebody that has uploaded their DNA into this. And then we'll trace their family tree down the side to the family tree of the person whose DNA is left there. Now, a lot of times it comes down to maybe one, two, or three people, but we can tell from the DNA, for instance, that uh, case that I have in 2003, that Potter case, there was two people in that family that had those same matches. One was 75 years old, the other was 45 years old, which was more consistent with somebody that would have committed this murder. He also happened to live in La Mesa at the time. He also yeah. happened to have, uh, was the boyfriend of the babysitter of the victim. So now you start really getting in these coincidental, yeah, this is way too coincidental. So yeah. what we do is when we, when we figure out that it is somebody that's close, 
they can either get a warrant to get that person's DNA or, um, you know, get their DNA through a different, uh, through a different source and then compare it to see if it is them. And then, you know, you've got the person, because as I said, you know, DNA is very exclusive to that person and um, you'll find it. It's, it's an except really exciting. So, so as long as uh, someone's family has uploaded their DNA to one of these services, like a family member somehow, even a distant one, then we can start to build that family tree and narrow our our pool yes. of suspects. And it, it literally to do that family tree, and they, they'll go up, find the common grandparents or uh, great grandparents, and then come down. It takes months. I mean, literally months of painstaking. Mm work to go through this and they're confirming everything through, as I said, you know, the traditional methods. Um, and it's, uh, it's amazing to see it happen. But the when the bottom line is you get to it, you can ultimately test when you test that person's DNA, if it matches, it matches, right. if it doesn't match, it doesn't match. So they're tested immediately They're you know, the results are tested immediately. That is so interesting. I was curious, kind of on the on the flip side, you know, these are cases, like you said, that have been cold for decades sometimes. What is it like when you talk to uh, the victim's family and say, hey, we know, we know what happened. We know who did this. Yeah, I, I, that is probably one of the most powerful moments there are because, you know, a lot of these people, you know, for instance, going back to uh, the case I have from 1983, there's two surviving sisters. They're 87 years old. And so for, four, for 40 years, they don't know what happened to their brother. He was found murdered in their house. Wow. And, um, you know, one of the sisters literally found him and they don't know. And I mean, when you lose a brother, that's obviously a traumatic event in your life. But when you lose it so tragically and so violently and um, you have no answers, it's, it leaves a hole. It leaves a hole in people's lives. So that it is so powerful when you look at that, uh, you know, the surviving victims and you're able to tell them that. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear. And I know uh, after the one, one of the cases, um, you know, our boss Summer said, you know, justice may have been delayed, but it, we'll do our best to make sure it's not denied. And right. we kind of live by that motto because it, it is, um, it's amazing to see. And, and I think everybody is owed at least an explanation and it also, in, in the other way, you, it can be used lately. Uh, people, I don't know if you've seen in the news, there was a, in 2003, a set of legs were found in a dumpster in Rancho San Diego. We had no idea whose legs those were. And then um, they obviously took a sample of them. Even it was in 1983, they took a sample of it. So we preserved the DNA, or that was in, excuse me, 2003. So they preserved the DNA and we were able to do that, loaded the DNA from the legs into the, the genetic genealogy uh, websites, and we're able to find the son of the woman whose legs they were. So then we were able to, you know, follow the sheriff's department was able to follow through and uh, find out, you know, we have our uh, ideas of what happened. But just the closure for that son, this this is a guy who thought his mom left him in 2003 and never talked to him again. Wow. So, you know, and wow. he had some, you know, obviously some pent up resentment, uh, mixed feelings. And then when he finds out, she was dead. Now she has a reason and an explanation as to why it happened. So it's it's really really powerful, and uh, the genetic genealogy is the is the key to that, and it brings the closure to these people, which is awesome to see. And the DNA just survives that long on some of the evidence that's that's stored somewhere in a in a crime lab or in an evidence yeah, locker. And that, that's what is so amazing. Like we're talking about Golden State Killer. His, he committed his crimes between 1974 and 1986. 
And like I said, we didn't start using DNA until the early 90s, and then it, most of the jurisdictions in the late 90s. But these police agencies had the wherewithal to collect this DNA evidence and preserve it, which to me is amazing. And in his case, you know, he had a, his was um, he committed rapes and also committed murders where he left uh, bodily fluids and his own DNA at the scene. So it'll if as long as it's preserved and there was no there's no there was no you know now it's very the rule regimented in how you need to keep it and where you need to keep it. But DNA survives basically forever as so long as it you know it doesn't uh, it's not mixed with something else or contaminated. So it's a very powerful piece of evidence that uh, that we use. Wow. Um, so you you guys build this family tree. You narrow your pool of suspects. Like I saw, you know, in, in the Golden State Killer case, they had multiple people that could have been it. But like you said, oh, this person was maybe in, in prison at that time that a murder was committed, so they could be eliminated. You build that family tree, and now you know you have your suspect. How do you go about if you can talk about it, uh, some of the methods to obtain their their DNA in, in order to make that comparison. Um, and there's different there's different ways to do it. I'm sure you've seen the crime shows where they'll follow the person around, and if they discard something, they can do it that way. Um, they can look at it, um, uh, collect it that way. The other thing is, like I said, they can get a search warrant um, in the Bunny case, uh, which was a case from 2006 out of La Mesa, we were able to get a search warrant based on all the evidence. And that was a case where mm -hmm. um, the victim was stabbed with a sword over 30 times. And um, somewhere during the process, the suspect cut himself with the sword, left his blood literally at the scene. Um, so we had that mm -hmm. blood and it was collected. And so we were able to match to him, but uh, that was through a search warrant because we had a lot of evidence and we were able to submit that. Okay. Um, and a lot of times these people will move too. So we're going through different states, we're involving different agencies, different courts, um, things like that. The other really interesting thing about this, um, about collecting the evidence is um, our, our investigators, uh, Tony Johnson being one of them, will go out and we'll get family members that we know are close or that could be connected, but we need, we need their sample. So Tony will literally go interview people and ask them, hey, we're investigating a murder and someone from your family is possibly to be the victim or possibly to be a suspect, and they will give him their DNA. And then we'll have their DNA and then we can load it up into the system and they know what we're doing. It's all, you know, it's all in the up and front. And it's amazing how many people are really willing to do this because they do want to know. And I, I, mm. I guess part of it is, yeah. you know, I'm looking for a long lost brother, but I also want to know if my cousin murdered somebody um, next, you know, before I invite him over to the house next time. So um, <laughs> it's kind of an awkward situation, but it's amazing that the public really wants this too. And they look to it um, as a, as a way to, you know, follow through and make sure they're safe and make sure other people get this closure because you would want it as well if you were in that situation. But it's a, it always amazes me how many people, you know, you knock on their door, Hey, uh, we're investigating this crime in order to see whether your family members involved, you know, obviously it wouldn't be them specifically, but it could be another distant relative. And we ask them and they give it, you know, other people don't, but uh, it's, it'd be a strange situation if someone knocked on your door and said, hey, can I have your DNA? But, uh, that they is do, so. You know, Brian, I was wondering, you've been doing, you know, a prosecutor now in, in various counties and in various, you know, areas for 26 years. How is it um, being in a cold case now sort of at the towards the end of your career? And, and what does it mean to you to be doing these types of cases? 
it's it's very like I, I think the best thing it's powerful and satisfying and in most of the positions i've been in i've worked directly with victims of crimes whether it be in domestic violence whether it be in sex crimes in, in gangs too in all of those areas you know it's had a direct effect on people you know when people are victims of crimes it's terrible this being the pinnacle and these are all you know it's a cold case homicide unit so everyone we talk to has been a you know a victim family member of someone who's been murdered and like i said that closure it really kind of culminates what I, my career has been about and how i've been able to you know get that satisfaction of of helping people get that closure and, and i like as I, I can't i can't say it enough how powerful it is and how much it means to these people they're never going to get their loved one back right to have those answers and to know like for instance yeah, my mom did, didn't get up and leave me. She was murdered, you know? Right. So for years, you're harboring these guilty feelings towards your mother when you find out that it wasn't her fault. And um, so to me, that, that's been awesome and been really powerful. And I, I, I love coming to work every day for that uh, reason alone. Plus, I mean, the, it's these cases are, you know, like Jorge said in the beginning, like something out of a movie. It's always something where it's, you know, um, science coming together with people, and, um, you know, combining the two. And um, as they say, the science doesn't lie. And with the DNA and the genetic genealogy, it doesn't lie. And that's something that's, it, it's in stone. So um, that's interesting. The, the, one of the difficulties I have noticed is when these cases are old, sometimes we have difficult finding witnesses and getting witnesses, yeah. and, you know, with witnesses that are even alive themselves. So or their memory yeah. or like, you know, see what they remember of the scene. Yeah, and the memory, yeah, the memories. It, it, it's I'm amazed at how many people actually do. You know, if you're somehow related to a murder investigation, hopefully it's only once in your life and it is something that you do remember. Um, so it amazes me. I just did a prelim on a case where a woman came in who had, you know, from 1980, 1983 case. And, you know, she was being peppered by the defense attorney about a, what color the shirt the, the suspect was wearing. The allegation was he left the bar, murdered the person, and then came back. And the person, the witness said, um, yeah, I know he, and she had never said this in the initial statement, but she said, um, what was interesting about him is I noticed he had changed his shirt. And mm. uh, I said, how could you remember he changed his shirt? And she said, well, he was homeless at the time and I let him keep his clothes at my house. And the fact that his shirt had changed and he came back to the bar led me to believe he's at my house when I wasn't there and I would never allow that to happen. So that was something that was 38 years later that I would have never known to ask the question and it just came out. So I'm always amazed at what people do remember and um, what they see. But I, like I said, I think this, you know, usually if you're being questioned on a murder case, it is, it is something that is pretty powerful in your life at that time. So. Well, we appreciate, you know, your, your hard work on these cases. And I know that the the community, and especially, like you said, those individual family members, I think it's life-changing for them. So thank you for all that and the information, because, you know, I, I think a lot of people really don't know how cold cases get solved, and we know about DNA, how powerful it is, but genetic geneal genealogy and what it has done to reopen these cold cases is really fantastic. And it's it's great that this office has this unit and has you as a prosecutor in this unit. And Tony Johnson too, I, I know him and he's a great investigator and just the whole mantra of just never giving up, you know, of really you guys never give up on any of these murder cases. And I think that's fantastic. So thank you for your service, appreciate oh, thank it. You. Well, uh, that almost brings us to a close. Um, 
because we end the show each time with something a little light and we look at the laws on the books. So in this episode, I was trying to find some laws that are really old because... <laughs> Brian, you're you're an expert in I'm cold really cases. That too. That too. You know, I was three years old uh, in 1983, <laughs> so <laughs> just to put a point on it. But uh, so I went ahead and looked at some California penal codes. You guys are all experts, Brian. You've been a prosecutor for 26 years. You you've encountered the penal code once or mm-hmm. twice. Uh, so <laughs> so we're going to look at the laws on the books. Uh, three are real, one is fake, and you have to guess which one is fake. Are you guys ready? Ready or not. All right. (laughs) Here we go. Penal code section number one. This code shall apply to all persons who reside, pass through, or otherwise perambulate within the state of California. Penal code section number two. This code takes effect at 12 o'clock noon on the first day of January, 1873. Penal code section three. No part of it is retroactive unless so declared. And finally, penal code section number four, the rule of common law that penal statutes are to be strictly construed has no application to this code. All of these were passed in 1872. I remember that well. And uh, (laughs) these are old laws still on the books. One is fake, three are real. Brian, since you are our guest, you get to decide which one is fake first. What are your thoughts? Wow. Um, number one was somewhat interesting. What was the word? Perambulate. I don't know what that means, so I might guess that one just because of that. Number two, I was the date is so specific, and I know California became a state in 1850, and 1873 um, kind of is almost 25 years after that, so... I'm going to go with number two just because of the date specific. And I think maybe the date's wrong. Okay. Okay. Good thinking. That's a pretty good guess because this this one's tricky, Jorge. I think you might have stumped me um, for the first time. I don't think you came up with the perambulate word. So I'm I'm thinking that that one's not fake. But I don't know. I don't know your your lexicon. Maybe maybe you've got some hidden words there that I that would be impressed with in a minute. Um, you know, I'm gonna go with. Oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with D. D is in dog. Penal code section four. You know, I don't. I, it sounds like that could be true, but I'm just wondering. Common law, you know can come from a variety of sources. I'm wondering if that to say it doesn't apply. I'm just not sure. So I'm going to go with D. All right. So let's go ahead and take these in order. Uh, Penal code section number one, it says this code shall apply to all persons who reside, pass through, or otherwise perambulate within the state of California. Now, do you know what the term perambulate means? No Uh, idea. Any any guesses? Ambulate, it has that uh, ambulance, ambulate, uh, is basically to walk through. However, this one is oh. the fake. I tricked you, you all. You did with your <laughs> fancy word. Fancy words. I didn't, I didn't know this word before I found it. I was looking through um, different code sections throughout the nation, and I found this word in New Hampshire's code, like section number one, where they say they require 
someone with the New Hampshire legislator to perambulate the state <laughs> to define the boundaries with its neighboring states, um, Vermont and such. So uh, this one is the wow. fake. Um, I finally Gosh, won against it's Maureen. Amazing. Hooray. <laughs> And it's with the penal you should code. Celebrate What's all the day furthest? today, Jorge? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day because I, I'm like, I know penal code section seven. I don't know what one, two, <laughs> three, or four. Uh, penal code section number one is actually this act shall be known as the penal code of California, and it is and is divided into four parts as follows: of crimes and punishment of criminal procedure of the state prison and county jails, of prevention of crimes and apprehension of criminals. So that is penal code section number one. Next time you get sight to it in your briefings. <laughs> well, thank you, Jorge. That's very good. That was very good. Yeah, so penal code section number two is this code does take, it says this code takes effect at 12 o'clock noon, first day, January 1873. Yeah, you're right, Brian. I, I They took a while to pass the penal code, it seems. Yeah. I don't, maybe it was pretty lawless in California. Wild, wild west. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for pl playing the quiz. I'm glad I finally swept Lori uh, or beat Lori for one. Uh, Brian, I don't know if you know, but Lori has beat me every single uh, time. So she was bound to lose. It was going to happen. It was going to happen sooner or later. With a really tricky uh, penal code quiz here. Uh, Brian Erickson, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate you coming on and telling us uh, all about cold case homicides and genealogy. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you all. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA's Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be submitted through our website at sddaa.net. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. One, two,